And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stayskull. I am joined, as always, by Paul Tenorio, and joined this week by Felipe Cardenas as well, our good friend and colleague from The Athletic. I recorded a separate intro for this show at the top. I thought that we were going to do a segment with Felipe about his fantastic piece on Atlanta United that we went in depth on, a segment on the MLS salary data and the segment on the crew but felipe's article was so good that we couldn't shut up about it so it went too long and then we couldn't shut up about the crew and you know we got an hour and 15 minutes in and we hadn't spoken about mls salary data yet so we're gonna save that show for next week we'll be a little bit more prepared i think it'll be better this way we'll be able to spend a little bit more time on it so we'll get back to that regular allocation disorder programming um but until then We've got this great episode for you. I really enjoyed recording it. I know Paul and Felipe did as well. And we do have a special set of sponsors this week. We've got Lowe's, True Value, Ace Hardware, and the hardware store down the street from my house where I buy screws when I need them. Um, So that's our special set of sponsors for this week. And we have a lot of talk about Felipe's Atlanta United piece, what it means for the club, what it means for MLS, and Columbus Crew SC, rest in peace. A lot of chatter about that rebrand as well. Uh, so enjoy the show. I think you'll like it. Welcome back. We are pleased, so very pleased, to be joined here on Allocation D- Disorder by the one and only Felipe Cardenas. Felipe, how's it going, man? Thank you for joining. This is so rare. It's so special. It's such a treat for us. I'm happy to be here. I'm probably the only person on staff that listens listens to every Allocation Disorder episode. So like... This is a true long time listener, first time caller, guest 
type of scenario. You've been, you've been on before. You're not whatever, probably. It's fine. You're not probably. You are definitely <laughs> the only person on staff that listens to every episode of Allocation Disorder. I've proven that because I've asked other people and they're like, no, I don't listen. So I think Pablo Alex listens listen. to some. I think Alex listens to some. But yeah, Pablo probably isn't even aware that this is a podcast. <laughs> I can't blame him. I will say that there are some people, Felipe just took a sip of wine because we, we, we tend to have a beverage or two. You have to, you know, just to, you know, wet the palate while you're talking. And Paul, everyone knows you get drunk on this podcast. Certain, you don't have to pretend to hide certain, it. Certain people, like, it's like how, like, in 101 Dalmatians, they had the scene where the owners and the dogs looked the same. Certain people have the perfect shaped wine glass for their personality. And Felipe and his <laughs> wine glass fit together so perfectly. They really do. I, like, I, it's like a, oh, wow. How would you even describe that, Paul? It looks a little bit like a miniature vase. Yeah, a vase, if you will. A vase. <laughs> is, are you yes. guys, oh, are, I will. So you're saying it's bougie, basically. This is very yeah. bougie? Okay. Yeah, it is bougie. For somebody it's like who got wears a nice little curve. As many cardigans as Felipe wears on our staff calls, <laughs> the wine glass fits. That's all I'm trying to say. It looks like an Erlenmeyer flask. Yeah. Do you guys know what that is? <laughs> no. <laughs> all right, never mind. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, this has been quite the intro. Felipe, you are here tonight to talk about your Atlanta United story uh, that really dives into the club's front office. Kind of, it's almost like a Game of Thrones type story, <laughs> just in terms of the power structure and how everything has worked, not just since Frank DeBoer came and went, not just since Gabi Hanze has arrived, but all the way back, even before Tata Martino was hired, um, all the way back, I think it was what, 2015? With Carlos Bocanegra and and Darren Eels meeting Marcelo Bielsa in Marseille, and that meeting and everything that commenced from it, it's a fantastic story. I am extremely jealous of the work that you did on it, which is, I think, the highest compliment a, a psycho egomaniac like myself can give. Um, so, congrats on that. Um, but but no, it's a fantastic piece. Paul, you have any, you have any, you want to gas this guy up a little bit before we start asking him some questions? Yeah. I mean, there is no higher praise than Sam being jealous of something you've done. So I don't know how I can top that, but look, we, <laughs> we, we both know the amount of work that you put into this story months and months and months. I mean, Felipe, I remember the first time we talked about it. I think it might have been pre-COVID that we first started mm -hmm. talking about this story. Um, and, you know, I think the work that you put into it, the time you spent developing relationships, talking to people, being patient and knowing that, you know, this isn't a story that needs to be rushed. And that's not necessarily even a story that needed to be written unless it needed to be written. And um, and it did. And I think, you know, when we saw what happened with Atlanta United season last year, there have been a lot of questions about what has gone wrong what went wrong with a club that was the had quickly become the standard in major league soccer it's what everyone wanted to be was atlanta united and suddenly no one wants to be atlanta united and that's kind of what this story was about and i guess i'm guessing felipe that's kind of the way you thought about it is can can we figure out what went wrong with atlanta yeah i mean it, i i go back to um just this very simple question like what why first of all, like why did they hire Frank DeBoer? I mean that was a very basic question. And and not and it was I think we all had our our answers but I just remember thinking that like how what is this going to look like after 
such incredible success with a very particular type of coach and a very unique sort of locker room and a set of players. You know, the front office had completely just like crushed it out of the gate um, on and off the field. Everything was going so right. And and the the jarring change in culture, I just remember thinking like, wow, like I wonder how this is going to look like not just in 2019 for Frank DeBoer, but midterm to long term. I expected Frank DeBoer to be here for a while. Like I remember thinking he could be successful with the players that were in place when he came in with the foundation that the club had set for him. Um, I truly believe that if the culture part was going to be could be fixed and could be perhaps maintained that Atlanta United could be really successful. So I think that's where I started. And to your point, Paul, like, listen, you guys, I talked to you guys a lot about this story throughout the process. And, you know, I think when I knew I had a story that I had to write is when you figure out that, like Sam said, that sort of the, the power struggles, the, the battle for control started very early, started before this club even kicked the ball, uh, before they had a training facility, before, Mercedes-Benz Stadium was was what it is today before the trophy was lifted before the brand was what it is there were there were relationships that were starting to fracture within the club and as as you guys know it becomes a a story that you feel like you are obligated to write whether it's no matter if it's difficult to do or you think people are going to be upset you have to do it but um I remember where I was when one of my sources very casually and nonchalantly assumed that I knew about the Marcelo Bielsa meeting and he kind of kind of just threw it out there like, yeah. And so then I'm sure you know that they met with Marcelo Bielsa in 2015. I was like, wait, 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 what? <laughs> <laughs> hold on, <laughs> hold on a second. Like it was September of this year. My wife was like, get like telling me we need to go. We're going to go dog sit. Okay. And I'd been on the phone for over an hour and that's when he dropped the, the name Marcelo Bielsa. And then I chased that. Like I had to find out like who was there, get it confirmed. What did they talk about? Why didn't he, why wasn't he hired? And, and from there, you know, just the reporting kind of took off. Yeah. And to answer that question, why wasn't he hired? Um, I think it's twofold. One, as you detailed in, the, in your piece, Carlos Bocanegra did not call him back, did not even give him a courtesy call which is crazy. You could say it's loco considering it's Bielsa. Uh, but also to be fair to Atlanta United, it was two years before they were ever going to play. So it's probably too early to go and hire a head coach, which is totally understandable. Uh, it's not like they got the first hire wrong either. Tots no. Martino came in. He did all right. Uh, won an MLS cup in year two left and became manager of the Mexico national team where he is currently still employed. So, Felipe, I'm just kind of curious, you know, this piece went in a bunch of different directions, but I think the focus of it, it would be fair to say, was kind of on Carlos Bocanegra, who I can't even remember. I think he was hired as technical director. That's right. since got an, an elevated title, VP of soccer operations, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I think the focus was probably on how he's managed his relationships in the club as an executive, as a young executive who didn't really have any prior experience in a role like this. He, he went from being a player into this role almost directly with nothing really in between. What do you think of kind of the dynamic and, and how he's managed um, Tata and DeBoer and now Heinze 
uh, and, and kind of maybe how he's grown or not grown, um, and what it's, how it's affected Atlanta as a whole. Yeah. I mean, first to just close out BL. So I remember thinking like, wow, yes, that was crazy that they did not call him back. That was, um, unexpected, especially for a coach of that stature. And I, to this day, I mean, again, Carlos Bocanegra declined the interview, so I was not able to ask him that. But I remember thinking like they really did go for it. They went to the, one of the most, you know, accomplished coaches in world soccer and they tried to get him. But you're right, Sam, like when I was doing the reporting and I started to talk to more sources, the same theme started to pop up within sources that weren't even familiar with each other. And that was Carlos Bocanegra and his management style, you know, the way he manages the locker room, the players that he signed, the way he manages the coaches that he oversees, the coaching staffs, the way he evaluates these staffs and the players. Um, and listen, you know, Carlos has a difficult job as a GM. He's not there to make friends. And, and I think that's important to note. Um, but it was significant to me when, when, from hearing from so many different people that they believed that his way of managing a coaching staff and, and especially a coach like Tata Martino that has, that came to this club after coaching at Barcelona, Argentina, winning in Argentina with New Year's old boys, going to the World Cup with Paraguay. Um, it felt like even a coach with that pedigree um, was going to butt heads with, with Bocanegra was someone that, that is highly respected, but clearly inexperienced in a very visible job. Um, and so that's to your point. That's where the, the story is is centered on, and how those relationships were managed or mismanaged. Um, it, it really depends on on the outcome of, of some of these deals. So, uh, you know, he has a lot of responsibility. You know, Darren Eels does as well. They also deserve a lot of credit for what happened leading up to 2020 um, and, and the accountability about what of, of the downfall of that season. Um, but it, it, it surely is focused on Carlos because, um, you know, he was promoted after the 2017 season and shortly thereafter is when the falling out with Martino really took place. Um, and, and you guys have said this, I've heard it on the show. I've heard Paul say it a number of times, like Atlanta United, look at the personalities that are at this club, like huge personalities from the locker room to the front office, the scouting department. Um, and, and when those egos and those personalities come together and, and, and if they clash, you know, it's, it, it can be difficult to manage if you're inexperienced in that role. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we should note, and like you put this in your piece, um, you know, one of your sources said, you know, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't easy to work with Tata either, you know? And like, that's the reality is like Tata had a difficult personality and rightly so, right? He is the most successful manager in some ways to ever coach in MLS, considering his re his resume, having coached Argentina, having coached Barcelona. Um, and he was winning in Atlanta. And and so there was a kind of expectation he had and uh, of kind of the way things go when you are a coach of his stature with the success that he was having. And that's not easy for anyone to manage, let alone... You know, like you, like to your point, somebody so inexperienced. I, I wonder though, when you did start to dig into kind of the fallout between Tata and Carlos, and then do do you feel like that factored in to the hiring process with Frank DeBoer? Because you know, I, I know Darren Eels pushed back on that idea a little bit, but for me in my reporting, 
you know, back when that coaching hire was made, I had been told off the jump, Atlanta is going to hire a European coach because of that friction that existed. As you, as you reported this, did you uncover kind of that theme as well? I did. I did. I mean, it was, it was pretty clear, um, through through many conversations with different sources from that with different levels throughout the club um that the the difficult relationship despite the fact that they won that you know MLS Cup final in 2018 which i think now in hindsight it's like all these things are going on at the club there's a falling out you know the head coach is not talking to the technical director and yet they still win the cup and i think we know how difficult it is to win in this league which speaks volume of, I think, the commitment of the players that were in that locker room that they were fully aware of what was going on. It speaks to the commitment of, you know, the coaching staff and, and perhaps even in, in Darren and Carlos's point of view, like saying, okay, like maybe let's just let them do it. Let's just let them work with these last few months. This guy wants to win the, you know, wants to win the MLS cup and they did. Um, but yes, like I think it's pretty obvious that that you perhaps you could not expect. Carlos to want to work with a coach like Tata again, immediately after the experience that he may have had or that he did have. Um, it, it became clear to me that someone like Frank DeBoer that, I mean, let's be honest, he, he doesn't have the same pull as a Tata Martino in a league like MLS, you know, in South America where the players are coming from, everyone knew about Tata. They wanted to come here and play. Um, you know, some of the players that were playing for DeBoer here in Atlanta were, com- were like somewhat aware of him as a player, as a former player, and somewhat aware of him as a coach. There was a disconnect right away. And I think the fact that he was not going to ha- be as influential in the personnel decisions, um, would not be combative, um, with, with the front office, with a personality like Carlos Bucnegra, it made a lot of sense to me that they would make that hire. Hey, everybody. Before I let Felipe, Paul, and Sam continue with their Atlanta United chat, it's Joe Lowry here, and I wanted us to take a quick break to hear from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. I just want to note that it's also a cultural thing. In Europe, the sporting director makes the decisions, the coach coaches. That's the traditional setup of most European clubs. A lot more European clubs. Not always true when you get to the very highest level. Yes, Pep, Jose, those guys are definitely more involved in the decision-making process. But on, you know, on a wider basis in South America, coaches have a bigger say in sporting decisions. And I think that cultural, I think that understanding that the the kind of battles that had been waged, it was like, okay, we're going to go to kind of a more traditional format. 
this coach will understand that traditional format better because they had to go to a high-profile coach. And if you're getting a high-profile coach from Argentina, as they did with Heinze, you are essentially agreeing to the coach having decisions, having power over personnel, as has been the case with Heinze since he arrived in, Ar- in Atlanta. And and that wasn't going to be the case with Frank DeBoer. No, and I'll just add, like, the sporting director role is, is somewhat new in South America. Like, that role is not... It's just it's not typical uh, at clubs, and and that's why the coaches have a lot more say in personnel decisions, um, and and someone like like Tata Martino, perhaps he was used to working with what they call like collaborators around the clubs that they work for. Sometimes they're kind of just like a, a chief assistant, and that chief assistant may actually also be dealing with agents and dealing with transfers and and figuring out the players that they want to bring in. Um, and then, he, you know, obviously the MLS model is very is it follows that European model of having a very strict, perhaps dotted line in an org chart of like a hierarchy and who answers to who. Um, but, you know, you look at to Paul's point, like Bayern Munich, the other day I was watching a Bayern Munich game and like their sporting director, like is on the bench. Like he's one of the first guys that's greeting the players as they're coming off the field. <laughs> It's like that's wild to me. It's crazy to me too. I mean, that would yeah, that is insane. I mean, you don't really see that that often in MLS. And one of the few times we have seen it, to my recollection, was with Carlos Bocanegra and Frank Frank De Boer at the MLS's back tournament when things were going south for Atlanta. Felipe, I can't remember exactly. Was that the final game for De Boer? That was, was the final game of the group stage against Columbus. Yeah, so that was the that was his last game in charge, and. Bocanegra is there on the bench talking, I believe, with Jeff Lorenowitz, looking like they're having like a pretty serious conversation, you would assume, about tactics. Who knows? Um, and, and it's right there. It's just kind of like, okay, for for us reporters, it would be the equivalent of uh, the editor coming to our desk and peering <laughs> over our shoulder as we write some copy. You know, like that's not a pleasant feeling for an employee uh, when your boss is coming down and doing that. We've talked a lot about the relationship, though between Bocanegra and various coaches and kind of how his experience with Tata maybe informed the hire of DeBoer, which obviously didn't pan out for Atlanta United. How do you think, though, it worked from the player side? Because you had some high-profile, controversial, um, maybe not necessary departures from Atlanta United's MLS Cup-winning team uh, in Julian Gressel, in Darlington Nagby, and in Leandro Gonzalez Perez, uh, to name three, that I don't know. I mean, I look back at them. Maybe they didn't need to happen. Yeah, I, I don't believe that all those players that you mentioned are cap casualties. I just I, I don't think that's accurate. And I think when we look at today the MLS sal- salary um, numbers, you can see that Atlanta is still spending heavily on some players that to be frank, aren't producing. And some of the players that they let go were key contributors to the trophies that are now at the club. And so I think at the time it was, and and the club still continues to kind of, you know, die on that hill that it's difficult to reward players after championship season in a salary cap league. And I think that's... And it is. It is. It it is. is. And that is true. But in this particular case... I just don't think that had to happen with all these players. You know, I remember going to Dallas in tw- like 2020, right before the pandemic to talk to Tata Martino for an L tree piece. And at the end I asked him like, are you watching 
Atlanta from afar. What do you, how do you feel about this overhaul? Cause by that time, all these players were gone and it looked like his response was like someone that had created kind of a work of art and someone had come and just like spray painted it. Um, like he really believed in the foundation of that team. He felt like that was a team that could compete internationally, which is what Atlanta United wants to do. They want to win the champions league. I mean, can you think about the team in place in 2018 with a coach like Tata in the CCL? Like, I think they would have been, again, you don't know, but I think they would have been set up to be successful. So, yeah, that would have been amazing. Every, yeah. I mean, it would have been insane to I see st- that. Sort I still of culture. think that's the best team I've ever seen in MLS. Yeah. I still think that, that 2018 yeah. team. And that's a good point because rolling. now people are like, I, I I don't know. I forget who, but I saw on Twitter like comparing rosters, and like this roster is nowhere near even the 2017 roster. It's nowhere near the 2018 roster. It's not touching the 2019 roster yet. And so, when you start over in in MLS, I think it's so hard to start over in MLS. And first of all, teams are better now too. They just yeah, especially when starting over involves losing Miguel Almira, right? Yeah. Like, well, and, and that's not that's not anybody's fault at there, Atlanta. There, there was though. I think I think a couple things. There was a feeling of, I don't think Atlanta knew just how. I don't want to say lucky. That's not fair to them, but just how right they got it on several players, right? Like. No one in MLS did. Almiron has been held up as this example of like, oh, the next Almiron, the next Almiron. There's a chance the next Almiron doesn't happen. Like he was that Almiron's special an of out- a player. He's an outlier. He's a crazy outlier. outlier. And and the they also had several really good complementary pieces that played really important roles. I think Julian Gressel is the best example of that. And I know a lot of Atlanta fans point to what Julian Gressel has done or failed to do at DC United, but he's been asked to be something completely different in DC than he was or would have been asked to be in Atlanta. He's been asked to be the star and he's much more of a complimentary player. And in fact, that was his role in Atlanta to compliment Joseph Martinez by serving those balls in from the wing. And he did that very efficiently and very effectively. And I think when you, now, to your point, Felipe, I mean, Sam and I talked about it today or last night when we were going through the salary numbers. When you finally now have a chance to look at Atlanta salary numbers in 2020 and 2021, you say, oof, man, it's not that they didn't have money. Because you look at what Emerson Heinemann's making. You look at Jurgen Dahm and what he's making. You look at the different center backs that they've had in since LGP was sold. Um, and you start to say, wait a second. This is – Jurgen Dahm makes – Double what Julian Gressel makes now, in DC to, right now. To be fair, to be fair, Atlanta did acquire a lot of allocation money from the Gressel trade, from the Nagby trade, uh, from the PT Martinez sale. So those things might help with with the signing of a Jurgen Dom. They also had that allocation money from the sale of Miguel Miron, from the sale of Tito Vialba. They had allocation money at their disposal. Emerson Hyman was signed prior to those moves. Uh, they're he he was signed. Wasn't Hyman signed after after Almiron left? After Almiron left, but before the other moves occurred, before Nagby was traded, sure. before Gressel was traded, and that salary was a, a hefty one. Like it, it increased significantly from the first year to the next two. Um, I, I, my point being that I don't think I don't buy, and I never bought the idea that this was a cap that these were cap maneuvers. There was I, I think some it was makeover. a valuation question with Gressel. I think that was always the thing. Gressel wanted more money than was than Atlanta thought he was worth. 
and they wanted to go maximize that. And fair play to them. I think, you know, Brooks Lennon hasn't been what Gressel was, but it's not like he's a terrible option at that position either. Um, but I would add, can I add one thing? Yeah. Is that those players that you've mentioned, like Jurgen Dom, Matias Rossetto, um, even Emerson Hyman, who I feel like it does well in, in the role that he has. It's kind of like... A, I feel like he's looked a lot better this yeah, year. Yeah, like he has this like very hybrid role where his job is just to be clean on the ball. Take care of the ball, get it off your foot, be well Nagby, positioned. Nagby, Nabia, Nagby. <laughs> yeah, but like those other players that Paul just mentioned that are on high salaries, like... They're not. They're not being like a coach like Tata Martino is not approving that sale. That that signing. A, a coach like Gabriel Heinze, if he's in 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 place before a player like Jurgen Dom gets presented, I don't think he approves that signing either. I think Jurgen Dom is one of those players that is one of the most anti Heinze wingers on the club, and it's going to be difficult for him to adjust to these concepts that Heinze wants. And so that's when you point to the front office that a lot of what I really laid out in the, in the story is that once you remove a coach that has, that's highly influential in the personnel decisions department, well, then it becomes, in this case, it became Carlos Bocanegra's team. He was the one that was really making these decisions. Paul McDonough had moved to inter Miami at the time. um, And that was evident Throughout the club, that was evident from the players. That was evident, uh, you know, around the front office. You know, if Carlos is the guy that was bringing in these players. That now we look at their salaries, and, and you can, you know, ask some questions and their production as well. Absolutely, um, I do think it's just interesting in terms of the overall dynamic because now you've seen them from Tata to DeBoer. That was a correction, right? That was we don't want a coach that's so powerful, and we want to make this more structured, right, and more streamlined, which I think is a, a fine goal to have i have no quibble with that whatsoever but it had the side effect of becoming a cultural disaster i think it's fair to say and now you see the correction again back in the other direction right where heinzei is maybe he doesn't have the pull or the cachet of tata right um but he's for, closer to, to that side of the spectrum right than he is even to the to the to the middle to the midpoint and I'm I'm very curious just how Atlanta is managing this as a club, as an organization, because this doesn't seem that healthy to just like violently switch back and forth between these two models. And there's no kind of, you know, I say infrastructure, right? Infrastructure in terms of facilities, they have that, of course, but infrastructure in terms of how they run their organization doesn't really seem like it's there. Felipe, would you agree with that? I agree. And I think that change in any industry for management is one of the most difficult things to manage is, is, is when, when you're changing, uh, culture, when you're turning over employees and you're bringing in new talent and it takes a lot of experience. And I think that's something that, um, Carlos Bocanegra is learning on the job. And, and I think he went a little too far in overhauling the roster and, and, and opening himself up to dealing with so much change all at once. Um, and, and Paul is right because we go back to why Frank DeBoer was hired. Is it, was it a, as Darren Eels stated to me in the interview, that it was more kind of a tactical decision about, about soccer. It was a soccer decision. They, they felt that they could change the way they played based on the way MLS opponents were now 
essentially getting used to the way Atlanta was going to play in their high octane type of offense. But to Paul's point, I did directly ask Darren if it was, was it because of the relationship with Tata that you, that the club went in a different direction? Was Carlos's fractured relationship with Martino the reason why a coach like DeBoer is brought in? And his answer on the record is what is in the story that like, no, their, their idea wasn't to change the culture. It was to evolve. They wanted to be, the biggest club in MLS, but they wanted to change the way they played as well because, you know, that's so apparently, apparently um, they already were the biggest club in MLS. Here's the other thing. They, you know, who else wanted to evolve? Another team we're talking about later in the show, Columbus crew. Why did they do the, this, this logo and this rebrand? They wanted to just change for the sake of change is idiotic. It's not evolving. It's not evolving. Just change does not mean evolution. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't work out like, you know, Tata changed his tactics late in the playoffs. And and even when he did that and he switched to a 5-3-2, they were still attacking. They were still full on a vertical team. Um, but it's and, a single elimination tournament. Correct. Like you can do that correct. and throw a wrinkle and screw the Red Bulls up entirely. Yeah. Right. Like they did. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know. It's just like. You, you see this in every industry. You see it with the rebrand, like Paul just said. But it's just, to me, it's a matter of pride and ego. And it's saying, hey, we did it this one way, and I'm going to prove how smart I am by changing it up entirely and not suffering in terms of the results. I, I know we need to move on to a couple of the things here, but I, I do want to say I do I do agree with that last part, Sam. And I think there is, you know, there was a real, I think there. this is, again, I'm going to speak for myself in a little bit of supposition. I'm not trying to speak for Felipe or his story because this wasn't in Felipe's story. But like, I do think that the the identity of Atlanta's success from the roster build all the way through what actually happened on the field to winning a trophy was tied significantly to Tata. And I think that probably bugged two other big personalities in the club. That's what I think. That... That by tying the club so intricately to Tata, you know, even something like something that they pushed back on with Felipe about Miguel Almiron. Everyone wants credit for Miguel Almiron signing. Miguel Almiron wrote, you know, he wrote himself that it was Tata Martino that made him want to come to the club, getting a call from Tata Martino. You know, but Atlanta had spoken to Miguel Almiron before Tata was hired. They were intending to sign him. Tata wanted to sign him and we, we, unless you want to call Miguel Amiron a liar, Tata was distinctly a, a reason why he came to Atlanta. But like those types of things, like you can't, that narrative existed. And the only way to break it was kind of to go in the other direction and show we can be successful without Tata. And they haven't been there to this point. But I do think that that decision to be so linked to the, a brilliant coach who won you a trophy kind of pushes buttons for the amount of ego that that is at the top of any professional organization. I think that's an interesting point, Paul. And speaking of the top of professional sports organizations, Felipe Darren Eels, Atlanta United president, one of those two people that Paul didn't name that he was referring to uh, here a minute ago, he had some interesting comments on Atlanta radio about your story the other day. Uh, I have a take on them. 
I think Paul probably shares my take on them. I think you're probably going to be, you know, a, a real pro and diplomatic. Um, <laughs> but I'm kind of curious what you made of the fact that the the guy who runs the show at this club called your story. What I mean, what did he say? That there were fact-checking errors or something like that? I mean, I don't know. To me, it's ridiculous. But what did you make of that? I was, I was surprised. I, I was surprised by by Darren's tone on, on these interviews because uh, I know that he we both have a lot of respect for each other. I know that he considers the athletic to be very credible because he's said it himself publicly. Um, and perhaps not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I doubt it. You know, I, I, I equate it to when you ask a player after a loss to come off the field and you just throw a microphone in their face, like perhaps a tea of the moment. But um, it, it's unfortunate because, you know, we had a very good 45 minute interview slash conversation for the story where um, it, it was laid out what we we're going to talk about. Um, I was very transparent throughout the process with them and the club. And I think to allude or the sort of innuendo that we don't fact check a story of this magnitude is, you know, frankly, you know, ridiculous. And, and I don't think he truly believes that. Um, and I think it's clear for the listener to understand is that I spoke to Darren first, fully expecting to talk to Carlos Bocanegra afterwards. And I think that was an agreement with the club. You know, I think Darren, when we spoke, was expecting the same thing. And so I had an entirely different set of questions for, for Carlos. And a lot of the questions I also asked Darren and, and to Paul's point, some he pushed back on. There were subjects that he didn't dwell on. There were ones I think he was great and gracious and they, they're in the piece. But after I spoke to him, Carlos Bocanegra declined the interview. And at that point, the club just kind of left it at that. They didn't get back to me. They didn't ask if they, if I needed anything else, if, if I needed to talk to Darren again, if I need to ask him something that perhaps Carlos didn't, um, that was meant for Carlos because he declined. And, and from when I realized that they were kind of like, all right, we're good here, you know, we go with the story. We go with what we have. And, and so surprised by his comments, um, and, and slightly disappointed because I think we have, a professional working relationship. And the story was one where I was very careful in, in being as open and transparent as possible. No gotcha questions. They knew what was coming. They knew what the story was. Um, and so, you know, I think after, in, after the fact, I'm sure he, he may perhaps want to rewind time and, and, and kind of hold his tongue a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to add a couple things here. <laughs> First of all, Felipe, if I recall correctly, first informed Felipe taking a sip of wine right now. For, for, if I if I remember correctly, Felipe, you had a conversation where you first informed Darren Eels that this story was coming in January, right? So they've known about this story. It's not like they knew about this story when the interview request happened a few weeks ago. You know, they they had an idea that this story was being worked on, what the what the story was about for five months. That is not the normal process in journalism for the subject of a story, subjects of a story to have an idea that a certain story is coming or what the gist of that story is or that it's being worked on. Like that, that's how much of a heads up was given in regard to this is something I'm working on. I just want to be transparent. 
you know, and I'm happy to speak with you guys and work with you guys. And in fact, I would like very much to speak and work with you guys with this story and let you, and, and give you a, a chance to tell your side of the story. And I think also it's worth noting, like when Felipe talks in the story about 10 different sources that he spoke to, there is a reason for that. It's because you're making sure that these stories that you're, these anecdotes that are in the story are corroborated, that there are multiple people that talk about some of the, the themes and the tone you know, that is that is communicated in the story and that these are people that were inside the club or are inside the club, you know, at that time while these things are happening, that were a part of these conversations, that were a part of these scenes in these moments. And and so I, I'm surprised, especially because, Sam, I, I'm just going to I'm not going to go too deep into this, but I'm also surprised because like there are some anecdotes in the story that that get to like a percentage of what we know happened that you and I know happened. That you and I knew in our reporting happened. So. <laughs> That's actually very true. Yeah, and and ten sources, ten sources that spoke on the record. I spoke to a lot more people than ten. Let's just let's just put it out there. So, and 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 I trust my sources so much. They, it's it's incredible the the trust that they invested in me for for this sort of story. Um, and the, the, I feel like the, the overwhelming feedback has been one. And I think Sam, you're going to get to it is, you know, from the fans is I think there is a sort of awakening to find out like these things happen at clubs, you know, their, their perfection is very difficult to achieve. A hundred percent. Felipe, this was an incredible story. I'm glad you pulled the cover back. Paul, you have something else to say. I, I have, just, I, I do have a bone to pick with okay. Felipe before we close. Well, I thought you, I, I just wanted to get your take. I mean, I gave my. Yeah, I feel like Sam there. skipped I mean, his take you, though. No, you guys covered pretty much everything I wanted to say. <laughs> to be honest with you, I mean, I don't want to go like too big J journalism here. Um, <laughs> I feel like Paul covered that. He but went to Medill, folks. I think, I think you made an important point on Twitter. I thought you could expand on that a little bit, which is that like, this is something new. This is something new for MLS and MLS. Teams. It is. It is. Thank you for for throwing that alley oop to me, carrying the piano for once and letting me play. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, I mean, it is something new. MLS teams haven't been uh, put under this kind of scrutiny. Very rarely has that happened throughout the history of the league, and it's cool that it's starting to happen because that doesn't just lead to more interest, right, and more conversation and more relevance and things like Felipe's story um in week four of the season week four week five of the season dominating atlanta sports radio airwaves for a day <laughs> an mls story are you kidding me that more, doesn't happen give me more of that more of that Bring right it. like that, so that's great but but the even better part is that it should lead to better outcomes too right and healthy pressure is good and that's what this is right there are a lot of people in mls and american soccer who have been allowed to slide with crappy outcomes because no one puts any pressure on them. And, and that's because the sport isn't paid enough attention to and media organizations don't pay enough attention to it. So I think it's, you know, not to toot our own horn too much here because I like, I really don't, that's not what I'm trying to do. Like if I wasn't a journalist, I would feel these same exact ways. Like these teams need pressure and this league needs pressure and it needs this kind of coverage in order to grow. And I hope people understand that. Um, I hope teams understand that. I think the I think the league understands it. Um they might not they're not gonna like it all the time, and that's totally fair too. Um but I think it's something that's important. And Felipe, kudos to you for doing it uh on this occasion. I do have a bone to pick though. 
Oh, go ahead. I do have some. I have a kind of a rebuttal. Actually, it's kind of like. All right. It. Well, no, you say that before I get okay. to. Okay. I was I just going to say that all those things that you just said, I have said to people within Atlanta United. You know, we've had conversations about. Listen, this is how we're going to cover your team at the Athletic. This is one of the biggest teams, if not the biggest club in MLS. Um, I am tasked with doing that. It is part of my job description is to cover this team as if it were a big club. I've told players, I've told executives. And so this isn't a surprise. And when they deserve praise, they will get it and they've gotten it. And when they... They've gotten a lot of they've it. They've gotten it. Yeah. And when they deserve to be called out, it'll happen as well. And to, to their credit, before this interview, like leading up to this season, both Carlos Bocanegra and Darren Neal's have been on scrums with reporters taking on the accountability and the blame of this drastic downfall from the club. So there are learnings that I believe they've been open about and it should turn around. If these relationships with these major personalities and big egos can come together. I think that's well said. Um, Felipe, I do have a bone to pick with you though. What? New who? New who Tolo. <laughs> I mean, you're listen, a new who hater. You're I, a new hater. <laughs> explain but, yourself. But, okay. Do you want me to explain why I'm a new who hater or you? I mean, you know why. Like, new who sounds I'm not like, a new who no, hater. No, no, no. No, you're not. <laughs> Trust me. You're not. Um, Sam and I get into new who stuff a lot because while- I left a WhatsApp group because of Felipe's opinion on new who. I still yeah, haven't rejoined yeah. it. It was and months it, ago. But I do get roasted often within the athletic soccer staff because I tend to- perhaps have too high expectations on certain MLS players. Uh, I don't know. People are like, you're too technical. He doesn't what have to kind, be technical. What kind of expectations aren't met by Nuhu? <laughs> what are you talking about? Let, let's be honest here. Felipe, like the number of times I've laughed at Felipe just dropping like some, some like just deadpan because he's not trying to be funny. Just like this guy sucks. What are you guys talking about? Like, like just absolutely abhors Felipe Certain and I have MLS a lot players. of Slack messages to this effect. We, yeah. we make fun of how people run. That's one of our favorite pastimes. That's true. Um, but yeah, man, I don't, I don't understand why you don't like Nuhu. But He's I'll give Nuhu credit. Like last year when you were like really pushing the train, I was pushing back. I kept saying, "Look, dude, he keeps, he just falls over way too many times. Like he sprints and then he falls." <laughs> and that I can't deal with that God, as a starting. You know, first division he's professional a, dude, defender. Dude, he's a runaway train. There's no brakes. It's all he, gas. He's gotten a little bit better. He's like the guy this from year. he's got the guy from Mighty Ducks, man. Can't <laughs> can't stop. What's that Luis, guy's name? Averman? Luis. No, not Averman. Luis, man. Mendoza. Luis? The Latino, bro. Are you sure it was him? I thought yeah. it was the guy with the red hair. The ginger. I think it was Benny the Jet, man. It was Benny the Jet from the Sandlot. Same guy. I think what's most special about the New Who story is Seattle's just like full on commitment to New Who. That is what's most impressive. Yeah, that is true. You gotta, you gotta admit that. And and like you know, I think he has reined himself in as a center back, and and he's been better this year. Like yeah. legitimately, I think he's been very good. So <laughs> Paul I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say we need to end this segment because if we let Sam keep talking about New Who, we're already he's the New Who comer of in. the year. We are, <laughs> we are already 45 minutes into this show. If we keep talking about New Who, this show will never. We're end. more than 45 minutes into this show, Paul. We already recorded a segment that we haven't recorded yet. Great Oops. point. And Great we'll be point. back after the break. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. And we are back. Felipe Cardenas has been kind enough to join us for a second segment. What? Oh, my God. We are blessed. It's coming in. Everything's coming up allocation disorder tonight. Folks, we are going to close the show out by talking Columbus SC. Rest in peace, crew. Uh, I don't know why you are gone. No one really does. I still haven't heard a good explanation. This rebrand is... (sighs) I'm at a loss for words, as you can tell. It's flatly ridiculous. Paul, How dare you? It's a refresh, okay? It's a refresh. How dare you? <laughs> I this. You know what this is? It's a gaslighting is what it is, okay? The club has come out through various mechanisms. Spokesman in a conversation with me, uh, Dr. Pete Edwards, part owner. Um, I believe Tim Bezbachenko, perhaps, the club president, has said something to this effect, where th- they said repeatedly that they're doubling down on the crew name after they took crew out of the name. What? <laughs> what? Like, am I, t- I feel like I'm taking crazy pills to quote another MLS owner, Will Ferrell, Mugatu. <laughs> Felipe, I am curious your perspective on this because for years before you became a uh, intrepid soccer reporter, you were, you worked in advertising um you did you probably did rebrands yeah like professionally oh, i did there, did you do any there, rebrands you started a direct tv I commercial did. i know that <laughs> no it was You're cox communications right you didn't learn how to unmute your microphone it was cox communications <laughs> i starred in a in a series of cox communications commercials <laughs> in, those are getting Coast. tweeted out tomorrow those i like are getting that tweeted i like out. that felipe admitted that he starred in them he, he said he started them <laughs> Um, you know what was what do you like, mean admitted? He did star in them. I was the I've star seen them. Man. He was the star of the commercial. And what are you were talking in about, Spanish, Paul? bro? They were in Spanish. That's like that's yeah. tough. Tough to do. Vamos. <laughs> um <laughs> something that Paul said was like was like knives in my eyes is when you when people refer to rebrands or drastic changes to a brand that doesn't need to change as a refresh. That to me communicates just absolute uncertainty about the direction of the decision makers in the room when they refer to this as a refresh. But the crew had like an awesome, and they had an awesome crest. It was like a very like Bundesliga vibey crest. It was cool, yeah. you know. It like it, it felt cool. It felt traditional. It felt real. Um, and, and I think the, if you ask designers right now. And to look at MLS logos, they are underwhelming. They're not getting better, you know, and some of them 
from the early days, I think how many are left? Just, is it just the, the revolution? That's the just the one? revolution. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, the and refresh. By the way, they're, they're going to change theirs before too long. I'm pretty right. sure. Right. I mean, a redesign in any, at any capacity is always very difficult to, to accomplish and pull off seamlessly. Um, the Chicago fire clearly is the best example, the most recent example. I feel like the crew, like you said, they, they had everything going. The, the list of names that you just rattled off, the front office, the owners, like some of the best people in the league. Then they win a championship with, with a, with a tight, a tight, for no pun intended, a tight crew of players, you know, good players. <laughs> I haven't good- heard tight used in that way in so long. <laughs> um, a good coach, a you know, like one of the best coaches in MLS and Caleb Porter that has a style, has personality, has bravado, easy to root for. And then they just change it. They just decide to change it. Going back to what just we because. talked about. It's like, why just change? Because. It just, it's not. And, and the logo is not good. Just to be honest. I, I'm just going to say it like, Sporting Kansas City was to MLS rebrands what Miguel Almiron has been to MLS DP purchases. Mm. Like there will so, never, but only sort of no, but like but only MLS sort of thinks, because no one liked that name either at the beginning. Yeah, but it worked, right? Now they're selling out games and and they say, oh look, if when you open a new stadium, if you rename your team to a European style name at the same time that you're opening a stadium, you're gonna have success. That's like the MLS thing to do, and you know it it discounts all the other things that made sporting Kansas city successful, even though people hated that name, they were good right off the bat. There wasn't as much of a connection at the time to Kansas city. Also, their name was the Kansas city whiz, which is a lot worse than Columbus crew <laughs> they, or Chicago. They were the Fire. wizards. They were the wizards at the time. Yeah, that's true. They, they moved from the whiz to the wizards to sporting. Nobody KC. beats the whiz. And, and I just feel like it was just like, Everyone wants to compare every rebrand and every stadium opening to Sporting Kansas City. And like you don't have to follow the same ingredients to get success. Like Columbus had everything set up here to be successful with the stadium reopening. They won. They had the best story in MLS and one of the best stories in sports in the fans saving the team, literally with hashtag save the crew, saving the team. An owner came in, bought the team put money into it, hired the best GM who's from there, hired the, one of the best coaches in the league. They win a championship. They have all this momentum. They're opening a new stadium. That's how you bring in new fans. You have a good team. You open a new stadium. They come in. They see a great environment, a good soccer team, and they stick around. Instead, they're going to have an opening of their stadium that's like DC United's opening was when DC United decided to beef with their supporters groups right before they opened the stadium. And so all these people came to watch DC United for the first time, really to check out this new stadium. And I flew home to see it because I always said I'd fly home when DC opened a real stadium and it was empty and it was embarrassing and it was sad. And what happened was there was zero atmosphere and it was downright awkward, awkward for the players, awkward for the coaches. And they lost that opportunity to capture those new fans that came to check things out and walked away being like, eh, that atmosphere was kind of like a baseball game. I I prefer baseball anyways. I'm going to go back to the Nats game, you know? And that was, that's what's going to happen in Columbus. People are going to come check out the new stadium. The crew's fans are still going to be beefing with them. The fans who have been there, who create the atmosphere in the stadium. And they're not going to, they're not going to have a chance to capitalize on this great moment. What should be a great moment for, for the team. 
We'll see. the The ownership did release something of a walk back the other day, um, where they're like, "Hey, like we want to repair this relationship." They're obviously not going to change this rebrand right now. Signage has been ordered. Jerseys have been bought. The wheels are in motion. Um, maybe there's a chance you have a Chicago Fire outcome where they say, "Give it a year," and then if you still hate it, maybe we'll change it. But the Haslam's who own the Browns uh, or own the crew, they they did this with the Browns as well, and it was to similar effect. They didn't change the name, but they changed the uniforms, which were classic and hadn't been touched for decades. And then when they changed them and nobody liked it, and there you go. They did the same with the crew. And, you know, it's interesting to me. I want to make a couple of points here. First of all, the crew was an awesome name. It was an awesome name. And it straddled the line perfectly between North American sports and European soccer teams. Perfectly. Just like some of the other names in the league do. I think Revolution does. I think Union does. Uh, Help me out here, guys. Sounders, Whitecaps, Timbers. Those are all great names. Impact was a good name, right? Rest in peace. Even Dynamo, I think, could fall into this category where it's like these singular kind of like abstract sort of concepts. And it's not like the Wildcats or the Bears or the Tigers. It, but it's like kind of this new, like different type of thing. And it did straddle that line, just like MLS straddles that line, by the way. It was kind of perfectly aligned. And then when they changed it for no damn reason, despite the fact that their fans were telling them, we love the name. Don't change it. And they didn't listen to them. And it's ridiculous, man. It's ridiculous. It's like the Super League. It's the same sort of thing. It's these billionaire owners coming in and saying, you know what? This is my thing. And fair enough. It is. You paid a lot of money for it. You're paying a lot of money to maintain it. You can do whatever you want with it and nobody can stop you. But you don't give it meaning. The people that give it meaning are the ones that show up every weekend in the stands. And when you don't listen to them, guess what? That meaning goes away. And then what? You're just a collection of laundry. And it's a joke. Like, it's just a joke. Like, I'm so, it's so stupid. If you want to change the logo, like if they came in and said, hey, we're taking over from pre-court. That was a nasty era in this club's history. And we want to remove ourselves from it. And we're going to change the logo. Fine. If they came out and said that, I actually think it would have been embraced. You know? But instead, they did this, they did it this way. And and here we are. Uh, I just don't get it. The evolution of the cruise logo is, is just is, is insane. Like the original crew logo was pretty cool. And then the the one that they just changed was like I mentioned, like had like a very European Bundesliga feel. It's just like very cool. And now they've just gone to like Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's like this weird. It looks like an esports it's, team logo. It's so bizarre. Like the tone of the, the logo just changed completely. Um, the the feel, the design, it's it's just it is off brand. And, and I think that to your point, MLS fans don't get enough credit. Like we always talk about, Oh, the business model in MLS is the gate, you know, like it's, it's all about the experience. And, and if without the fans, like, you know, this league is, is, is nothing, you know, it's just nothing without the fans. And so like, there is a clear disconnect between these decision makers and the, the passion of the fans. You go to anywhere else around the world and, you know, these clubs mean everything to the fans. It's like, I remember a random YouTube video of an old guy in Argentina outside a stadium. He's like, the only thing I I love more than my wife is my club, not even my kids. 
And, and, and I feel like the crew <laughs> is like the crew fans. That's how they feel. They're like, whoa, man, like what happened? What, what about us? And, and, I, and me being in Atlanta, Atlanta feels like everyone loves to throw the soccer city label at different cities. Like I don't, I don't feel like Atlanta is a soccer city. It feels like an MLS city because the most important soccer team in the city is Atlanta United. You know, like it feels like an MLS city. And if you were just to be like, hey, you know what? Maybe we should change the name of Atlanta. Like they changed the the home uniform and it was like, what are you doing? So I think there's like, there's this trend happening around the league where like test, 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 change. Let's see what happens. And eventually the fans are going to give up. Look, I think there's there's a real disconnect here because MLS sells the the supporters groups when it's convenient, right? Because they know the atmosphere is what makes the league. Right now, the on-field product is not as good as what you can stay home and watch on your TV on Saturday mornings, right? Or Saturday nights if you want to watch Liga Mekis, right? So they have to sell the atmosphere. And it's, and it's great. The atmosphere at most MLS stadiums is fantastic. And it's a different vibe than you can get at any other American sport. It's a different feel than NFL or college football, NBA, Major League Baseball, you name it. It's a totally different vibe. And and people enjoy it, and they should. Um, and it's, it should be something they sell. But then the league will turn and flip that on its head when it's convenient and say, well, we're not going to cater to a small subset of fans. We're not going to make decisions based on what this very small subset of fans who pay the least amount of money to come into our stadiums and have the least impact on our bottom line in that way. We're not going to cater to them. Except for those fans and their atmosphere – are what bring in the people in the high-paying suites. They're your only you marketing tool. Exactly. They're your only effective marketing tool. On a second note, and I talk about this a lot. I, I was on Total Soccer Show with Taylor yesterday, and I, I have. I'm, so I'm going to stop talking at this point and let you guys go. But I do want to say right before this episode we started recording, I, I read on Reddit the deck that the fans, supporters, had given to the crew, apparently, when they were a part of this rebranding process, when they had been looped in on it, while, you know, I don't know, I don't know at what point it sounds like it was in January, January. When, when these two supporters first got a chance to, to look at the rebrand and they predicted it perfectly. They predicted exactly what the fans were going to be upset about, both local and national. They said, these, this is the way you can rebrand or refresh and win the fans over. If you keep these, these and these and these elements that don't change anything drastically, but refresh and bring in this new crew 96 thing and you bring... This, you know, emphasizing the crew more on secondary um, logos and blah, 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 like perfectly laid it out. And it got ignored. It very clearly got ignored. And that just goes to show you everything. They don't value the opinions of the fans who actually show up every week, who create the sta- the atmosphere in your stadium. That's the really only selling point at this point in the league's trajectory. And and in the end, when you ignore that, you wind up here. And and that's that's basically that sums it all up, doesn't it? I mean, it's 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 pretty simple. It's exactly what we just talked about for 45 minutes with Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it's exactly what we just talked about with 45 minutes with Atlanta. It's just the ego. It's people wanting to come in and put their own stamp on things. Everything else be damned. They know best. No one else matters. I'm doing what I want to do and we'll see how it works out. And these outcomes are entirely predictable. I don't think DeBoer was entirely predictable in this way, right? To give Atlanta United some credit, uh, I thought he would succeed just fine. Didn't work out like that. Um, no one would have guessed that this would work. And except for however many people were involved in the vision 
And it's just a shame, man, because MLS is finally old enough now. Here we are in, what is it, the 26th season, 25 years old. It's finally old enough now where it's starting to build some history. And things like this remove it for no reason. And and it's just like we're trying to build a soccer culture. And many people have put their blood, sweat, and tears into that. And, and, and we've done it. We've been paid to do it. All those people that stand in the Nordic or in any supporter section or the season ticket holders or the people that just go to MLS, a few MLS games a year, every year for the last 25 years, they've been paying to do that, right? They've put their money into it to build this history. And you have things like this that go on and the arrogance and the the lack of humility and the disrespect. It's frustrating. It's just so frustrating. In a bid for authenticity... You erase. Son, oh God! You erase. Give me, a, give me a break. You erase the only authenticity you have. That's the funniest part, man. They talk about wanting to be globally relevant, and and they they reach for some kind of authentic soccer name, authentic soccer vibe, because they think that'll pull in the casuals. And 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 in order to achieve that, they erase the only authenticity this league has, and it's limited. It's limited. And the crew is the oldest team in this in this league crazy yeah you can't i mean you cannot you can't make history if you keep changing it and that seems to be like this the the model lately in mls is is to just continually evolve for no reason and the other thing is i go back to the fans like one of the things that i feel has been the most eye-opening for for this atlanta story that we talked about is not just the fans reaction but this this sense that like they they kind of knew or they were aware you know it caught some people off guard but there's a great majority of fans that are like savvy and are understanding the way this league is moving and are understanding front office decisions and are understanding the personalities involved um some are really into tactics some love you know what you guys do with allocation disorder and and, and the money that moves around in this league but overall, it's like the fans are becoming smarter. They're becoming more savvy and they're they're not – you can't dupe MLS fans anymore. And I feel like these decision makers at these clubs feel like they can. Like we can just change things and they'll still come back. Eventually, they won't. And so the crew – just to go back to the the, the logo design, like I, I would love to know more about just – the process and and what what sort of iterations came before this logo that they decided to i mean to, Felipe, to you know from. what happened you, <laughs> you told me what happened like i worked in an advertising agency for five months once upon a time and i know what happened it's these people that worked on this logo know nothing about mls they know nothing about columbus crew yeah they were given a brief they were given a vision board and they worked off of that and they probably did a fine job considering the materials that they had right and then it went and got approved because they paid a lot of money for it and here we are right and and i i just want to leave you guys with one last thing here the thing that i cannot even remotely like wrap my head around what is the upside here like i i know i know the idea is that hey like we have these hardcore fans they're not going anywhere no matter what we do. Fair enough. They probably won't. They'll probably be back. At least most of them. But we need to attract more people. And MLS does need to attract more people. I think that's a fair thing for them to want to do. They, they must, in fact. But 
how does this achieve that? Like, getting rid of the name and changing to a crappier logo. Like, what do they think that's going to get? Like, I, that's the part I can't wrap my head around. Do you guys have an answer? Can you explain it yeah, to, they think, explain it to me? Yeah, I think that they believe that they are going to get people who want high-level soccer and say, oh, Columbus SC, that sounds like those European teams that I hear about. I'm going to go check them out. And that that, that reads more authentic it reads more and thus it reads more genuine and professional as a soccer league than does an americanized nickname like columbus crew and it misses the mark that's not what people determine like instead of doing the hard thing which is like spending more money and getting a better product on the field to to create that genuine feeling they think they can skip a step by just giving it a european sounding name and they, they, I think they underestimate the intelligence of American sports fans, really, is what it is. But that's that's what I think the aim is. I think the aim is for people to be like, oh, Columbus SC, that sounds like a professional soccer team. It's either that or they just want to improve the SEO searches for MLS teams. It's one of, one or the other. I, I, I agree. And I, I but, but to your point, like, they just missed the mark. Like, there are American type of, like, sports culture that that mls has adopted that hold the league back right they're like the calendar and the 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 way that the clubs come into these international tournaments and they're just like right behind the eight ball they're never going to compete there are other american parts of sports culture that i think make mls awesome like the columbus crew like that made mls pretty cool the columbus columbus soccer club sounds like a travel team like they did not upgrade the name Okay. Like they, it's now it's a downgrade. Now it's just generic. They're a generic brand. Like anyone, any, any youth soccer team in, in Columbus could just, you know, adopt the same name. The crew was unique and that's what was cool about them. By the way, Columbus Soccer Club is that team that's getting their butt beat at tournaments, right? They're losing to like, <laughs> they're losing exactly. to like FC Delco, right? And like Triangle FC, like Team America, my club growing up, like, Real Your name was Team America? Yeah. They purchased the name from wow. the NESL team back in the day, way back in the day. No longer exists. Did, Rest in peace, did the South Park team guys per- purchase it from your club? You gotta, you gotta <laughs> read Pablo's piece about Team America, man. We 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 came before that movie. That movie was named after us. That's how good we were. Yeah, let me team shout America out World Place. Speaking of Dynamo, which Sam you brought up, I think the Houston Dynamo, that's a cool name too. I think that's a legit name. Shout out to Indianapolis Dynamo, my nemesis growing up as my club nemesis. They Why are you shouting that. out your nemesis? Because it's a cool name. I was jealous of their name. They beat us in the state championship 3 years in a row. Sorry. But what were you the, the junior the junior Irish? What team were you? We were with? South Bend Junior Irish. Hell yeah. Were you actually? Yeah. You just nailed it. Yeah, All South right. Bend wow. Junior Irish. Uh, well, as you should, as you should have rebranded to South Bend SC. You might have had a little bit more success. <laughs> as long as we're shouting out our former club teams, shout out to Palatine Celtic. I think it was SC. We played them too, man. We played them too. We've there talked about go. this, Sam. They were we they have. were our Illinois nemesis. Them in Hawthorne you know, States. I, I just I just uh I just want to say that while I think we're all united in our belief and our feeling about the Columbus SC rebrand, I'm very excited for the MLS upcoming new South Carolina Derby between Nashville and Columbus SC. Uh, very excited for that. Anyway, thank you for listening to Allocation Disorder. It's been a fun episode. Thank you to Felipe for coming on. This has been awesome. Uh, thanks for listening. I've enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it. 
Shout out to Lowe's. We'll be back next week.